0: If you have your Bibles, <clears throat> turn to Joshua chapter 3. We're continuing in our study of Joshua. Also on your chairs, there should be a little half sheet of paper in case you didn't bring a Bible or your iPhone is on the blank for some reason and your app's not working. Here's the text, um, Joshua chapter 3. We've been in a study of the book of Joshua and um, we're, we're just making our way through. And Joshua is the story of of the people of Israel after their wilderness wanderings with Moses for 40 years, coming to the edge of the Jordan River and the Lord leading them in to take the land that he swore to their forefathers to give them. And so for the next three weeks, we're really gonna be focusing on one major event in the book of Joshua that is really broken up into three acts, spanning Joshua 3, 4, and 5, the major event that we're talking about is the people of Israel actually crossing over into the Promised Land. That's the big event, uh, is them crossing over. And so today we're gonna look at what's, what I would call Act 1, and that is the actual crossing of the Jordan River. And uh, as I read the account from Joshua 3, and that's what it's about, I want us to remember a couple of things about the people of Israel as I read this chapter. Three things. The first is remember that these are people who don't have a home. They don't have a homeland. They're in this process of going into the promised land, but at no point can they decide, we don't want to do this anymore, let's just go back to where we came from. That's not an option for them. They, they don't have a homeland. The second thing is that this is a generation um, who all they've really known is this wilderness wandering life. The generation before them, is all. they're all dead now. There are no storytellers from those days anymore, which means, and this is why this is significant, it means that everything in their lives has been laser-focused on what's about to happen. This is the reason why they have been doing everything that they have been doing has been to come to this place that the Lord has led them to go in and to take the land that he's promised. So they are focused on this moment. It's what they've been about since they were children. And then third, remember... There's a lot of war that lies ahead, a lot of fighting, a lot of battles. And this is a people who, what they are is they're the descendants of slaves and a people who have been enslaved for 400 years. So so just think about that for a second, that they're getting ready to fight a lot of battles, but they're not a military people. They're slaves. And so they have these things sort of filling out the color around them of who they are and what's happening. So let's read the account of Joshua 3 of them crossing into the promised land and then, and then unpack it. Joshua 3, verses 1 through 17. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days... The officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant... When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. We're going to learn about them later and what their function was. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord... The Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarathon, and those flowing toward the Sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passed over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over Jordan. This is God's word. Pray with me. Lord, would you illuminate for us this story? Would you help us to see uh, the function of dependence and helplessness uh, as you work in and through the lives of your people? Amen. So, this story about Joshua and the people crossing over and really the whole book of Joshua and for that matter, really everything before it in scripture tells the story of struggle, doesn't it? It tells the story of people having a hard time and having to depend on the Lord and there not being really any easy way just blazed for them, but there's all this struggle. If you're like me, I think my default reaction to struggle is that it is something that is an anomaly that I should try to get to the other side of just as quickly as possible. That 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 hardship and struggle and and helplessness, that feeling of helplessness, is something that that is is uh, really not part of God's plan for my life. And it's just kind of an interruption to things. And I want to get on the other side of that as much as possible and as quickly as possible. Do any of you resonate with that sort of feeling? Let's just let's get over this. Let's just get into the promised land and build our kingdom, right? I think a lot of times we think of life, maybe like we, we, at least we expect life to be like a car, where it's supposed to just work all the time. And when it doesn't, we say, "Why? This isn't right. Why is this? This isn't good." And like that is broken down. And yet, if God is the one leading His people, He sure does seem to be leading them to a lot of helplessness and a lot of places where they are broken down and a lot of places where they just are completely dependent and helpless. You know what it's like to feel helpless? I was thinking about this this week. I know what it's like to feel helpless. I feel helpless a lot. But I'll tell you a story. Um, My wife and I have been married for 15 years. And uh, I remember being a seminary student in St. Louis. And uh, we were taking a walk around this little apartment complex. And she told me during this walk, I'm pregnant. That was the moment when I first learned that I was going to be a dad. And I, rem- I just remember it like it was yesterday. You know, it's all this fun of, of telling people. And things went fine uh, for the pregnancy. You know, she did, she did great. We found out we were going to have a boy, Christopher. And uh, big news, first kid on both sides, of the family, and uh, they gave us this due date, you know, when it, which to me is funny because, uh, you know, he's, he's going to come out when he's going to come out, but they told us this due date, well, two weeks passed, and he wasn't born yet. Two weeks, yeah, and so we went to the doctor We were having these regular visits, and the doctor was, I remember walking into the doctor's office, and she was joking with us about how stubborn our son was, and she started doing the things that doctors do at that stage of the pregnancy, and her tone changed, and I remember that too. I remember that as vividly as I remember finding out that I was going to have a a baby, and she got kind of serious with us, and she said, you need to go ahead, we're going to go ahead and induce and if you've ever been around doctors, they seem to have this way, maybe you are one, they have this way of speaking with this positive, it's going to be okay, and yet not using any information when they talk to you, right? <laughs> just sort of, well, we're just, it's time, it's, you know, we're going to go ahead and just... So we went to the hospital, and, uh, you know, they hooked Lisa up to all the machines that they hook people up to, and all the drips, and I'm watching the monitor, and all that stuff, and... Things are going fine, and they've induced labor, and things are starting to, to happen. Um, but there was the reason we were there was because there was a complication, and, and if we weren't careful, that there could be some respiratory infection and things like that in Chris if if we didn't if we weren't on this. And you know, so I'm in the room, and she's there, and I'm starting to notice that the room is filling up with people in scrubs and they don't really have assignments they're just sort of there and and she has chris and as she's having him the cords around his neck which you know is serious but it's not nine medical people serious necessarily i didn't know But he was born, and I remember a nurse coming to me, kind of putting her hands on my shoulders and moving me to the corner of the room and saying, stay here. And the group of people split into two. Half of them were working on my son, and to my surprise, half of them were working on my wife. And that happened fast. And I was standing there, so helpless. I couldn't do anything. And yet, everything I loved was there, you know? And I just couldn't do anything but pray. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. Because... I didn't know what was happening, and they were talking in language that didn't make sense to me, and they were working on my son and my wife, and I was thinking, this will either be the best day of my life, or it will be the worst day of my life, or it might be both. Do you know what it's like to feel helpless? they were okay. They ended up being okay. But in that moment, it wasn't just the prayers. It was so strange, the way that I was praying. And this isn't a boast because I, I, was, not in, I was not equipped for this moment, you know? And, but I was praying about not just what God was doing in my wife and what God was doing in my, my son, but what he was doing in me. You know, there was the sense that you are attending to me in a way that is very important for me and I don't understand it. And I didn't want to leave that moment. I wanted to be in that moment. As much as it hurt and as afraid as I felt and as helpless as I was, I don't think that when we arrive at places in our lives where we just have this desperate feeling of helplessness that in God's mind and heart he's thinking my bad I didn't mean for you to get to that place let me just take care of that and fix it that he has us there for a reason and in our text we see we see proof of this because Joshua leads the people of Israel to the banks of the Jordan River our text tells us and then what they stay there for 3 days and you think, why? Why are they camping out for three days on the edge of this river before they cross over? And I think the reason is to reinforce the fact that these people aren't equipped for what God has called them to do. They're just not ready for it. They're not equipped for it. They, they don't have what it takes. And they have three days there at the river's edge to think about the fortified cities and to think about the experienced armies. Three days to think about how they're getting ready to embark in something that is going to be battle after battle after battle and they're not fighters. Three days for the Lord to break down in their hearts and get them to this place where they understand that they are utterly helpless and that they are completely dependent upon the Lord. And in that, the Lord says, all right, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you in. Almost as an aside, our text tells us later that the Jordan River flooded its banks at the harvest. That's what season this was. Normally, the Jordan River is, it's a, it's a creek. The Cumberland is huge compared to the Jordan River normally, except at flood stage, and it's in this valley where at flood stage, it's not so much that it gets deep as, as that it gets wide, and fast, and so it gets about a mile wide in places like where Jericho is. It's a mile wide, and it's mud, and it's weeds, and it's underwater, and and they can't cross it on their own. So they need help, and this is what the Lord is telling them here, this detail. He's giving us this detail that they can't do what he's called them to do without him helping them, but God has a way And it's a way that is familiar to them from the stories that they've heard. That they're going to cross over that river, but they're going to cross over on dry ground. That God is going to hold back the water like he did for their forefathers in the Red Sea. And they're going to cross over on dry ground. And just to put a point on it, that this is God who is leading them in this. He tells Joshua, get the priests together and have them carry the ark and stand in that water. And when they step into the water, that's when I'm gonna hold it back. That's God's way of showing the people, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. The presence of the Lord is what is leading you. When the people thought about the ark of the covenant, when they saw it, it wasn't just this magic box of tricks. The ark of the covenant wasn't this, it's not... Actually, if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie that is all about the Ark of the Covenant, sort of, <laughs> that scene in the end when the faces melt off, you know what I'm talking about? I think they might have been onto something with that scene if what they're trying to capture is that there is a holy power of the presence of God in that ark and you're not to mess with it. That I think the people of Israel understood that. And we'll give you three things that would have come to mind when they would have seen the ark. First, they would have thought about God as being holy because what was in the ark? The the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, this, this law that says God is holy and here's how we are called to live. That's what's in there, this reminder of the holiness of God. But also is this reminder of God's judgment and justice. Hang with me on this we're, we're wandering now into places that are uncomfortable and deep, maybe a little bit hard to go. But judgment and justice, that God judges people, and there's this story in numbers 12 where Aaron and his wife Miriam are kind of indignant about God's leadership through Moses. and Miriam says to Aaron well hasn't Hasn't God spoken through you just as much as he's spoken through Moses? And it's not just that Moses finds out about this, but God knows about it, and he summons them to appear before him as judge in the tent of meeting, all three of them, Moses, Joshua, and Miriam. And where does he call them to convene for this moment of judgment? But he calls them to where the ark is, to appear before the ark of the Lord. And God judges Miriam, and it's not pretty. What happens? What happens? But it's not just God's holiness and his judgment, it's also his, his mercy that they see in the Ark of the Covenant. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The blood of the sacrifices that the people would make, the people of Israel, for the atonement of their sins, they would take this blood and they would sprinkle it onto the Ark And what they were doing was they were praying that the Lord would receive the blood of a lamb as a substitute for their own, as a sacrifice for their sins. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement, that one party's sins would be atoned for by the blood of another. That's exactly what Christ did for those who would believe in him is he gave up his life for me. And they would see this and think about God being merciful to accept the blood of a lamb on behalf of the sins of the people. I mentioned what the ark is calling to mind, and this is heavy stuff. We're going here, though, because it's important for us to understand that just as we're called to delight in God, we're also called to revere him. He's holy. He's not your buddy. We get chummy with God, but I think sometimes to a fault where we think that God is just another one of the guys who's just kind of good with whatever. And he's holy. He's holy, and there's something to revere. It's not the way that you might fear a tyrant, but the one that you would revere a judge who knows you, and not only knows you, but knows everything you do, and has the authority to pronounce judgment over you in light of what he knows about you. That kind of reverence. The people understand that they are in the hands of God. It's why the writers of Hebrew, the, writers, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I love that that's in the New Testament. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Are you sensing the weight of this? The ark is prominent in the story not because the leaders of the people of Israel were superstitious and said, yeah, let's get the ark out there in front. Well, they try that later and it doesn't doesn't go well. The ark is prominent because God says, put it out there. Let them understand that the God who is holy and just and merciful is the one who is leading them. And the priests are then to carry this ark ahead of them, 2,000 cubits. Now, We don't use the cubit that much as a standard of measurement anymore. But 2,000 cubits is roughly 3,000 feet. So it's about a half a mile, a little over half a mile. Follow the ark, but stay about a half a mile back. And I love the reason that the Lord gives. It's because you don't know where you're going. And it's not just that you don't know where you're going, but it's that God does know where you're going. And so when they're in this position where they have to follow, they can't run ahead and neither can they lag behind. They have to follow. And they have to follow in the way that the Lord has called them to do this. Consider thinking about helplessness. Think about fear. Think about the places in your life where you fear the most. I think for most of us, we really don't know how to name that stuff. We have things that we think, okay, I think I fear. This we think of phobias. We think of, well, I fear clowns, you know. But what, what about the stuff that elicits responses from you that are deep and that are dark and that are drastic, and you like? I don't know why I respond the way I do. Chances are it's because there's something in you that is terrified about what's going on, and God is boring down into that. Consider what these people went through. They had these two miraculous water crossings in their existence. They had the Red Sea and they had the Jordan River. And I don't I don't want us to just dig too deep into metaphor with what God is doing with this people because while there's lots of great application for what's happening, this this really happened. This was a life that they lived and this really happened. But but think about this. Passing through the Red Sea was this moment of leaving the land of their oppression. And crossing through the Jordan River was this moment of inauguration into the land of their inheritance. And they had these 40 years in between where they were in neither the land of their oppression nor the land of their inheritance, but they were wandering and moving constantly toward it. I think it's a great illustration of the Christian life that we live out our days like this not enslaved in the land of our oppression and not yet home to our eternal inheritance, but in this place between. And in this place between, the Lord is continually saying to us over and over and over, you're helpless without me. And they have been. He's fed them with manna He's given them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day just to keep them alive and to keep them moving in the direction that he would have them go. These are people who have depended upon him every waking moment of their life. When I was there in that hospital room, feeling that sense of helplessness, I want you to understand something about that. It wasn't because in that moment I had become helpless. I've always been helpless. You've always been helpless. I can't keep my wife alive. I can't make my child be born healthy. I have dear friends who have a very similar story that had a much sadder ending. You're helpless. God is calling you to things that you can't do, He's leading you to places that you can't get to unless. He blazes the trail and then shows you the way. And that's what he's doing with the people of Israel here. He's got these circumstances, these things, and we want to sort of strip away the bad stuff. See, I just want to get to the other side of this. I don't want this to be a part of my life. And yet, God works right in the middle of that, where there are these things that we hunger for that we can't make happen. So what's going on with that? Why is that there? I want you to think about the fights that you're in right now. The fights that you need to be in right now. If you're, if you're married or you have accountable relationships with friends and people who are close to you, think about how those work. When I was... First married and we were living out in Bellevue. I tried and wanted to cry my way out of every fight with my wife. And I, I'm a good crier. I'm a really good crier. Now, <laughs> I say I used to cry my way out of it. It's not that I've learned some great lesson, it's that my wife is on to me. And I happened to be married to a woman who, who told me at one point while I was crying. You try to cry your way out of this stuff. And we need to dig deeper. So when you're done, let me know. I mean, (laughs) yeah, amen. (laughs) Amen. But what do you do when you're getting pressed into and you just want to run away and you want to get out? Do you shame the other person? Do you attack? I know one of the things that I I hear people do, I've done, is we say self-deprecating things to get people to just leave us alone. We say things like, you're right, I'm a horrible person. You ever say something like that to somebody just to get them to leave you alone? You're abusing them. What else is it? I mean, I'm just trying to make you feel awful when I say that. I'm trying to inflict damage on you because you're inflicting damage on me. And it's just retaliation and it sounds humble and it sounds like we're just running away but it's just a punch in the throat isn't it why do we do that why do we do that you remember the movie the lord of the rings you guys remember that there were books too <laughs> there's this ring right and what happens when a person puts the ring on what happens to them They disappear, and who wouldn't want that ring, right? I mean, this whole story, really, is about how it's just an irresistible temptation to have this kind of power, to have this ring, where one of the things it does is if I'm in the middle of battle and I'm in trouble, I can put this ring on and just vanish. I mean, we'd give a right arm for something like that, right? And we just wear it on the left. But, right? I mean, but what happens when you vanish? What happens when Frodo puts on the ring and he vanishes? And the armies around him are fighting and they can't see him anymore. A deeper, darker, more sinister evil focuses in on him with much worse ends in mind, right? We're the same way. When we're up against the wall, and our tactic is to vanish and to disappear through self-deprecation or through whatever it is to just keep, get people to leave us alone, understand that you're going to a much deeper, darker, uglier place where evil is taking root in you that is trying to tell you to prize isolation over being known. And that's a, that's a horrible lie. The people of Israel are in this glorious place where they can't do anything but follow. It's all they have. It's the only option there for them. They're exposed. They have to follow. And this is how God works in fear. You have fear, I have fear. God's usual method is not to say, let me take the thing you fear away. But instead, it's to minimize the power of that fear by making you face it and by making you see that it doesn't have the power to give you life and it doesn't have the power to take your life. That God is stronger. We overcome fear not by escaping the thing that we fear, but by trusting God while we're in the middle of facing the thing that we fear. And this is a mercy when we recognize that we can't get to where we need to be unless God blazes that trail and shows us the way. There's a pastor in. Texas named Skip Ryan who said this. He said, I think a mark of a Christian is that you know from time to time that God has hemmed you in so that there is no way to escape except the way that he provides. But that's a good thing that God does to bring you to that place. So I want to end with a question. What's all this about? Why are we talking about fear and running away and why are we talking about struggle? What's God doing with the people of Israel in the first place what what's this about is this about land is this about them just getting to this place where they have this wonderful parcel of land and they get to say wow this is fortunate is the reason why we lean into the areas where we're afraid and we fight through the battles that we need to fight just so that we'll be better at fighting is it so is it even so that we'll win is it even so that we'll repent Why does God take us through this hard stuff? Why does he put us in these positions where we're helpless? Why am I standing in the corner of a hospital room while while a team of medical people are working on my wife and another team on my son and I'm standing there and I'm doing business with the Lord and I'm saying, everything that I love is in your hands. Was it just so that everything would turn out okay in the end? And I would say, oh, I just needed to pray and God, heavens no. There's no guarantee of that. That could have ended much differently. So what's this all about? Why is God leading these people in a way where they're dependent and they're helpless? Why are you dependent and helpless? Because God's call in the lives of his people is to himself. It's not to land. It's not to moral victories. It's not to little life lessons. It's to him. It's to him. And he is testing for us all the things that we think have the power to kill us and the power to give us life. Life. And he's showing us that they don't have either. 1 John 4 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Have you heard that? That's an aggressive sentence. Love is being aggressive, like a bouncer. It's throwing fear out aggressively. And that's a good thing that God is doing, and we feel it, don't we, when perfect love is casting out fear overturning the tables of our hearts. When God leads us into situations where we feel helpless, it's a mercy because you are helpless. So you're feeling something that is true. But also know whatever you need, whatever you really need, he will provide. He will give you what you need. He will blaze the trail and show you where to go. But you can't run ahead and you can't lag behind. And all that's left is to follow. Pray with me. Lord, as I have just this story from 10 years ago of my son being born and the complications there, I stand here knowing that I will have more stories in my life of a feeling of utter helplessness and dependence on you. And I also know that not all of them will turn out as happy as the story of my wife and son. That's a part of living in a broken world. I know that that's the case for people in this room. I know that for your people crossing the Jordan that they had at least as many if not more sad stories than they had happy stories. So Father, would you change the economy in our minds and help us to understand that it's not about having more happy stories than sad stories, but it's about depending on you and following you and knowing you and trusting you and resting in your love and your provision. Father, I pray that you would make us people who are better at fighting the fights that we need to fight, that you would give us true humility and not just um, uh, manipulative self-deprecation. Father, I pray that you would surround us with people who will call us on stuff like that. Lord, I pray that you would give us moments like three days at the river's edge where we are forced to have an extended period of time recognizing and dealing with our helplessness and our dependence. And I don't even know what that means, what all that would mean, where you would take us, but I pray that you would. Lord, I pray this unto the end that you would make us a people who understand that your call in our lives is not to some thing, not to some achievement, not to some moral victory, but it's to you, that you are the destination. And Lord, that we would understand that we have a perfect sacrifice in your Son, and that we would understand that just as you are holy and just, you are merciful and gracious. Thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.